Welcome to the ULI Ottawa podcast, connecting industry professionals and leaders in an active discussion about real estate and land use across the nation's capital. Here we are, episode one of the ULI Ottawa podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Brandon Uke. I'm an office leasing broker at CBRE Ottawa, focused on tenant representation. And alongside me is my good friend and co-host, Kevin McMahon, president of Park River Properties, an Ottawa-based real estate company. Kevin, how does it feel to be here? It feels great, Brandon. I know we've been working on this for quite some time, and I'm, I'm happy to be sitting down and actually pushing the record button here. We, we looked at this as an opportunity to spread some of the, uh, the initiatives that we were working on with ULI through podcast channels uh, as a result of COVID. We had a great program lineup for 2021 and that quickly went out the window and we had to pivot. And so I'm glad to be sitting here and finally pushing the record button to move this forward. Pivot, a hot topic or I should say a buzzword for 2020. But yes, uh, needless to say, we pivoted. I'm excited. I've got tons of hype just to be here. We're really excited to get uh, our podcast out on social media channels. We want to deliver this content to our listeners, build a following, and be almost like a bit of a go-to resource, not only in the real estate community of Ottawa, but in the business community as a whole. And Kev, why don't you just give us a bit more of an overview on ULI and what we're all about? So if I bring it back to basics, the reason I joined ULI back a couple years ago when it was expanding into Ottawa was the ability to to network with like-minded individuals that were focused in the land development industry, get to know uh, other people that had the same interests, uh, and also advanced topics for discussion to help uh, lead our city through a pretty significant change that's coming uh, ahead of us, especially now facing some of the other challenges that, that have since been presented. Uh, certainly exciting topics to cover. And to do that, we're certainly not gonna sit here in isolation with just the two of us. That would be fairly monotonous and I don't think we'd have very many listeners for very long. So I'm excited that the lineup that we've put together for this year includes some of the, the most interesting people in the industry covering a wide range of topics from office leasing through to affordable housing and other other various uh, segments of the industry. So really happy to be here. Today our first guest is Sean Hamilton. He's the VP of Business Development at Kenderell, recently changed over to the landlord development side after 25 years in brokerage. Sean's a friend of mine, former colleague of myself and Kevin. And with that, Sean, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself because I know you'll do a better job than I can. Hey guys, listen, uh, first, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, secondly, I think it's about high time that Ottawa had a podcast highlighting the commercial real estate industry, as, as we're likely going to discuss over the next little bit. It's an exciting time in Ottawa, and I think the more that we can spread the word of excitement out to the people in the city and the business community, it will bode well for us. So well done. Uh, for taking the bull by the horns and, and, and doing this. You know, to your point, what's my story? And again, I think the excitement here is not who's delivering the story, uh, but the story itself. But to give a little bit about me, I've been a lifer in commercial real estate in Ottawa. I, was, I started out really on the Quebec side, working with a, a residential brokerage firm who, who specialized in commercial. And then was uh, hired by J.J. Barnicky, uh, which is now part of Cushman Wakefield, 
and to be their researcher in Ottawa. So I started on the ground floor learning the ins and outs of commercial real estate and who owns what buildings and what makes up our inventory. And then gradually, somehow, uh, got promoted to running the Nortel account in Ottawa uh, in, in the late 90s, helping them with their real estate as they grew and subsequently contracted. And like you, Brandon, uh, was a, uh, an office leasing broker primarily and had some good fortune dealing with private and public sector tenants. And then, then I like to say I was demoted into management uh, back in 2014, which was actually a lifelong dream of mine uh, to, to try and manage a commercial real estate firm and, and held the reins at CBRE Ottawa for six years and was really fortunate to have a, a strong and dynamic team uh, that uh, I think did great things in Ottawa. And I guess in the last six months, I've moved over to the landlord side and I'm very excited to be here because it continues the learning. But more importantly, because I think we're well positioned as a development company, as all developers are, uh, to take advantage of the good things that I think are going to come to Ottawa in the course of the next few years. So I, I apologize for the long-winded intro, but uh, uh, that's my story in a nutshell. Uh, you know, in, you yourself, you're a pretty forward-facing individual, so given your experience working with the public sector, given your experiences in general knowing the Ottawa market and basically being that loud voice for so long in the brokerage industry about surmising what's going to happen in the market, what's going to uh, transpire for the public sector, how are private sector tenants going to react to COVID. Do you want to kind of give us a bit of an overview in, in your perspective now as a developer at Candorel, where you think the office market's going? Because we've sort of coined this term at ULI on our management committee meetings, hey, where'd my office go, quote unquote. So with that in mind, why don't you give us some perspective on how CSQ's positioned for the future, what you anticipate the downtown core looking like in 24 months time, and just where we're gonna be when all this COVID drama is over. Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there. So let's, let's, let's peel this onion. You know, let's talk about where Ottawa was going before COVID hit, just to set some boundaries. And Ottawa, you know, for our listener out there, was always thought of as the boring government town that had a tech element to it that was kind of exciting. And tech was primarily located in Canada, and it was a city of two solitudes uh, that behaved very differently from one another. And we seemed to have a market that didn't really correspond or act the way that other markets acted in North America because we had such a large presence of the federal government. So. In 2008, I'll give an example, when the rest of the country uh, was experiencing spikes and vacancy rates, Ottawa was not, and that was because of the moderating effect of the federal government. Well, let, let's fast forward a bit. We've, you know, Ottawa, prior to COVID, was experiencing a real boom in technology, uh, not just in the suburban traditional nodes, but technology was coming downtown and yes Shopify was a big was a big element of that 
But Shopify literally made that bold first step, and we'll talk about other bold first steps I guess they've made too, uh, into our downtown core. And that brought other high-tech tenants coming into our downtown core, and all of a sudden, Ottawa's core went from being a boring government place to a spot with a real urban technology presence to the point that urban technology became the largest user group after the federal government and became larger than our accounting and legal communities combined. So we were seeing some excitement in the core uh, and we were becoming less dependent on the federal government. So when COVID hit, all bets went out the window. And there's been lots of philosophizing from people on what's going to happen to the office. There are many who say the office is dead, the work's never going to be the same way again. The reality is we're in the midst of a crisis making these proclamations and we don't know what's going to happen. You know, you know we, we right now note that nobody's in the office and this is for health and safety reasons, not business reasons. So Sean, it's funny you say that. I'm just thinking out loud here. There's lots going on at Constitution Square right now. There's lots under construction. Do you see this as a bit of a period of opportunity? Buildings are empty. You can get in, do the construction you need to so that your buildings are ready when tenants are coming back. I mean, at CBRE, we're anticipating that there will be some pent up demand to get back into the office space. So are you thinking, you know, I'm gonna get all this construction done out of the way right now. When people come back, they'll be into a fresh new product, they'll be invigorated, they'll be excited. And how is Canderell prepared for that? Yeah, so that's a great question. So we, you know, clearly we want to take advantage of, of lower occupancy levels because of the pandemic to, to do construction and to minimize disruption. The reason why we're doing this construction is because we want to be able to offer a service that takes into account what we think will be the new mindset of tenants going forward, giving people choice of, of, of how they can interact with their building, recognizing that our common areas and our lobbies can be an extension of tenants' workplaces. So, you know, we want to get that out of the way. We want to be first to market. We want to really create, a, you know, some waves, positive waves in the community that, hey, here's a landlord who's thinking differently and offering a product and a service that appeals to a tenant's new sense of flexibility. Yeah, that's a great answer, Sean. And I think too, earlier you mentioned public sector activity, and I know that you're pretty deeply connected with the public sector and the real estate team. Thinking about Constitution Square's current vacancy profile, it's no secret, you have a lot of space available. Have you guys engaged in conversations? There's rumor that there are hundreds of projects that were started then stopped as a result of COVID with PSPC. Are you positioning yourselves to win these contracts when and if they do come out? Um, you spoke about tech as well. Is that sort of a tenant that you guys are targeting to fill this vacancy? And really it seems what you're saying is Constitution as an asset is ready for the next phase. It's, it's a work in progress, safe to say, but you've got the vacancy, you're doing the construction, you're investing yourselves in the future. How do you land a combination of technology tenants and public sector going forward knowing that this building historically has had a lot of public sector tenants? Yeah, so good question. I can't comment on individual deal specifics, right, uh, just for obvious reasons. But I can say, you know, that we're friend to public works and we hope they're friends with us. And you can't really be 
you know, a, a significant presence in the downtown core and not do business with the federal government. So their relationship with us is very important and we're working very hard to make sure that our building meets all of their requirements in terms of environmental sustainability, uh, in terms of convenience, in terms of accessibility, uh, certainly being competitively priced. You know, we even are looking at what types of models we can do to have indigenous inclusion in some of our dealings with the federal government to help with truth and reconciliation, which is a topic I think that uh, rightly so is becoming more and more to the forefront today. So really we are looking at just breaking all the rules in a positive way to be able to appeal to the federal government and make it easy for them to do work with us. Uh, again, there's two sides to the landlord offering. There's the physical box that you offer them and it's the service that you offer them in looking after that box. So we're doing that. And clearly on the private sector side, you know, we recognize the, the urban tech presence in the downtown core as well as the corporate presence. And part of our lobby renovations are to provide a refresh to our, to our magnificent lobby, but it was a magnificent lobby 30 years ago, uh, we want to make it more appealing to the worker of today who might want to take their laptop down uh, to a seating area in the common areas and have a sandwich and, and interact that way. So positioning for both these users is, is very important. And, you know, part of it, it's interesting, as a landlord, you're now becoming a psychologist or an anthropologist almost to try and assess the needs of the individual rather than the company uh, to provide a service that's attractive. Absolutely. And I know it's easy to talk about the trends in the office market. Obviously, COVID has created a surplus, perhaps, of sublease space. People are questioning, do I need an office? Is this just a sunk cost? I mean, personally, I don't think it is. But to get away from Canderell and CSQ, thank you for those mm -hmm. for the uh, the insight there. Impacts on company culture obviously get called into question a lot. Working from home, how do you balance working from home and coming to office? How do people collaborate going forward? Have you guys done some digging on that? And do you have a certain understanding of what you think the average office user will want going forward in terms of office collaboration, impacts on business? Has COVID fast forwarded? this workplace evolution that we read about in the news every day? So the short answer is nobody knows. And anybody who tells you is making it up. There's, there is nothing that we can draw upon that, that tells us how this is going to play out. We do know that change was already in the works and that teleworking, co-working, remote working, work from anywhere was becoming part of, uh, of corporate culture. Do I see that accelerating? I don't know if I see it accelerating, but I see COVID giving permission to corporate culture for people to work at home maybe more, more than they have in the past. Now, there will be some who will say that, you know, this work from home will decrease dramatically the amount of square footage that companies need. And, you know, to them I say, you're, you're probably right, but let's just talk about the pace of change. And uh, the example I'm going to give you is that 
When we were dealing with Nortel in the high-tech industry in the late 1990s, the gold standard for space per person was 250 square feet per person. Fast forward to today, pre-COVID, that number was closer to 150, maybe 120, you know, all in space per person. That's about a 40 to 50% reduction in space. Now, if I'd stood up 25 years ago and said, due to technology and remote change, not remote change, but remote working, office requirements will uh, decline by 40, 50%, people would have said the sky is falling. Well, maybe the sky is falling, but it's falling very slowly, right? And I suspect that with technology and new trends, office space per person will decrease but I think it'll come at a pace that is manageable enough that as business in the area grows, we will still fill our buildings and have a need for space in the downtown core. Sean, previously you brought up Shopify, and I think it's an iconic example in Ottawa as it had a huge impact on the downtown core pre-COVID. And I think it's an icon globally, especially given the unique industry that they're in. I think when COVID first uh, presented itself, they made a really quick reaction that assured their staff that there'd be continuity through challenging times, and I think that was a really important piece. I also think the company is primarily built on a culture, and I think that's often very difficult to create a culture and maintain a culture with remote work. What are some of the challenges you think companies might face in building a culture when, when people are working remotely? Uh, some in the office and some outside of the office. I feel as though there's a possibility that uh, employees become somewhat commoditized and less entrenched with companies because they don't have relationships that tie them to their workplace. So it's a, a lot less friction for them to move to another company who might have a slightly better offering that maybe they wouldn't have considered pre-COVID because they were in the office and had those relationships. Yeah, so that's a really key question that you're asking Kevin and one that I'm you know sort of living right now in that I recently changed uh, careers and I'm now with Candarell who have a wonderful open arm culture uh, and clearly are people focused and I'm finding it difficult to engage with the corporation uh, as I would normally given the co given I'm on zoom calls rather than meeting people face to face this is me, a senior person who has 30 years in the business, who knows the company I've joined, and I'm still feeling uh, that it's somewhat restricting given COVID. So I can only imagine that this is something that's being, being, felt, uh, being felt within other organizations. I, I would suggest to you that, you know, culture is king. I mean, without culture, I don't really know what a company is. So I would suggest that you know, this idea of working anonymously at home and never having to come into an office, although technologically permissible and, and, and workable, you know, really don't, I don't think it will work because it will uh, erode company culture and without culture, I don't think you really have, you really have much. So you know, I, this is why I feel that the office market um, will always have a presence while it's always changing because if you think of 
companies, they're really a collection of villages, I mean, or a collection of communities. And it's that sense of community and brain power that uh, gives a company its strength and its power. So uh, I think this issue of culture will be, will be sourced out once the pandemic is over. So it sounds what you're saying, Sean, and I think I speak for the three of us in this room, extroverts will suffer, morale will suffer, um, camaraderie, I mean, I'm a camaraderie guy, I like being around others, it motivates me to do my job. I, I see the value and if you know what, if you've got a full day slated of heads down work and you just need to be at home and be focused, if you're writing financial analysis or if you're writing an RFP, then it makes sense, you can know, you can probably do that from wherever you want to do that, probably even pre-pandemic, you could do that from wherever you want to do it as a result of technology and how advanced we are compared to, say, when you started in the industry and you had a typewriter and a phone book. Um, but for me, I think that uh, you're absolutely right. We need to get back to work at some point when it's safe to do so, probably on a flexible basis. Uh, and it'll, it'll change the role of the office. It might be a place where we meet with our teams more. But I also think there's some traditionalists out there, like three of us in this room, who are going to want to go to work and be in that space. So let me, you know, ask a rhetorical question. Why does the answer always have to be something binary? Why does it always have to be the office is dead, no one's going back, we're all going to work from home? Or why does it have to be we all have to go to the office? I, I don't recall really any balanced business argument that has an extreme to it or is binary. It usually it should have some balance to it and I think working from home has a balance point just like working in the office has a balance point and I don't know what it is about human nature that in a time of crisis we feel that the answer is either all or nothing because uh, history has never really given us an example of when there's been an all or nothing long-term result, uh, I think that the reality is work from home will have a balance point, and that was already coming down the pipe before the pandemic. And I think what's really interesting is I think it uh, the one good takeaway from my perspective out of out of all of this is that it puts a lot of put a lot of companies on the spot to do something that they might previously not felt comfortable to do. And I think that's going to lead to positive change long term for many companies. Some might revert back completely, but others that might not have thought that remote working could work in their business because of all these types of factors, be it salespeople had to travel to the client all the time to get the business. If that business is still operating and making those sales remotely, I think there's profound impacts for that business, both from a company uh, profit, profitability perspective, but also employee satisfaction. If people can travel more selectively and, and less frequently, that probably has a benefit for a wide range of people in the industry. But I think the, the age-old question is always going to boil down to productivity and how people, people feel they can be productive working with that flexibility and how people monitor that productivity and engage uh, uh, with their business. Because I, at this point, I don't think we've encountered a stable point in time where we can truly evaluate productivity. I think we went through peak productivity when everybody was on the same Zoom calls and it didn't lead to situations where half of the meeting is, is live and half of the meeting is remote because I, I believe in, in at least calls that I've been involved with in the past where there's people 
on the phone or, or on a, a teleconference, I think the people that are not in the room at the time often get sort of discounted in that discussion. And I don't think that's going to be something that a lot of people are going to, to continue to do over and over again as they join in these meetings remotely. And I think it's going to be leading to a push back, uh, back to the office. You also have to balance productivity as a standalone is, it sounds nice, but it's not really practical because you need productivity to be sustainable and you need it to be repeatable. And uh, if you have an environment that's binary, uh, whereby uh, you know people are either forced to work in the office against their will all the time or they're at home, uh, all the time without the collaboration. I think that puts the uh, the sustainability of productivity in doubt and you, you need to put the two together. And if you wanted to tie it even further, Sean, I mean, at least the general sense in our organization is that people are tired of virtual meetings. There's a certain level of fatigue now. I mean, sure, you can measure productivity at the end of the day these office users or businesses that we're talking about, their main goal is to make money. So if the office is a place that allows people to collaborate, grow ideas, and make money, how do you how do you ignore that when it's the foundation of your business? It's why you exist. Correct. Well, it, you know, the interesting thing is, 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 and again, this is maybe just me showing my age, is the conversation has morphed in business with the goal still being the same and, you know, to make money sustainably. Right. That that it's again, everything has to be sustainable or else, you know, you have no longevity. But the conversations today compared to 20 years ago, even 15 years ago, are far more human and far more humanistic, taking into account uh, the fact that an organization is not this sociopathic theoretical entity. It is a collection of people working towards a common goal. And I, I think the conversation is a much better and healthier one now because it's recognizing uh, the human face of an organization and trying to derive a solution that uh, is based on people and their well-being. And again, this ties back to the work that we're doing in our lobby here at CSQ, uh, you know, to try and harness, uh, you know, the power of the people, inspire them, uh, to make them happier. Uh, the byproduct of that is they do better work, they can do it longer, and they're happier doing it. So uh, it's just interesting that we're having more human conversations than we've ever had before. So I, th I think it's a really interesting topic that businesses are facing, but I also think it's a really important topic for cities to focus in. And obviously we're, we're in Ottawa, we're going through a new official plan uh, process. And a lot of that has to do about creating these 15-minute communities. Can you touch on what you think cities need to do to evolve with this work-from-home shift that, that I have no doubts is going to be more prominent now than it has historically? Uh, and, and what are some opportunities for cities to take advantage of it? 15-minute communities, I think, are going to be very important for Ottawa. I think Ottawa is well-positioned for it. Um, I'm concerned, though, that the process between development politicians and residents is becoming more and more acrimonious and we need to find a way to communicate uh, you know amongst these three parties in a way that everyone understands 
I don't think 15-minute communities, however, are the answer for all things. I think it has a balance point. Uh, and I think there, it, there is a role that we'll have in, in Ottawa. And I think it will benefit as a result of this, this work from home environment. But again, just as work from home will be part of the regular workforce, not the exclusive, for, the exclusive part of the workforce, 15-minute uh, communities will be part of you know, the solution, not the exclusive solution. And so obviously with 15-minute uh, communities being a goal, public transportation is a really important piece to making that work. LRT has seen a lot of development along the Confederation line, but primarily and almost exclusively it's been residential driving those, uh, those developments. Uh, do you think that the city can do anything to further uh, entice large tenants to move towards those centers to give that employment base that really makes that 15 community 15 minute community work because without it it kind of falls on its face because people if people don't work in the community they live and they have to travel then they're not necessarily spending the money at the retail shops that are within that community so it, it's all part of a cyclical process that needs to work in conjunction and we're just from my perspective not seeing that yet that's a really good question, uh, you know, because both the demand for residential and the demand for office are running at different, uh, different levels right now. Right now, there's almost a stampede for, for new residential development, and I'm talking sort of high-rise transit-oriented development, and we're not seeing necessarily that for, uh, for office space yet. Now, there are a few sites along the LRT, 900 Albert being one, um, that, uh, you know, is looking to go ahead. And the office market is a little different because you have to find a tenant in advance and, and have them come to your building, whereas the residential market is more of build it and they will come side of things. And those, those, those two elements make for di very different risk profiles in, uh, in construction. You know, my view looking forward is, you know, Ottawa has been a very uh, different city than, say, Toronto, whereby we've had, and I'll oversimplify Ottawa, our two biggest nodes are downtown and Canada, and we've had pockets here and there. Whereas if you look at Toronto and you look along the, the subway line stops, you've got mixed-use development pretty well along every, along every stop. I think the long term is Ottawa will have that. Um, we're seeing plans for development along the LRT uh, stops. It's just a challenge because the the two operate at different uh, at different paces. But you know, rest assured, in my view, uh, it will be the future. And you know, as you bring people into the area, which Ottawa is growing you will need to accommodate them uh, and have office space for them. So is it fair to say existing 15-minute communities in Ottawa or nodes are like the Canadas of the world in the sense that if I'm a tech employee in Canada, I can live in Morgan's Grant, I can drop my kid off at school, I can start my work day until noon. If I need to go into the office at 1 o'clock for a meeting, I'm getting that flexibility and I'm also living in the 15-minute community so that I can go down to the grocery store, get my groceries at four o'clock and then zip back home and pick the kids up from daycare at five o'clock? Is, is, is this what we're talking about? Or do you think the 15 minute community is evolving past that? 
Well, I think everything's going to evolve past what we think it's going to. That's just the nature of, of how the world works. I would, it's interesting that you threw out Canada. I, my view of the 15-minute community is more uh, within the green belt than outside the green belt. Now, that doesn't mean that Canada uh, couldn't be a 15-minute community uh, outside of the green belt, but my vision of the 15-minute community is let's talk about uh, Wellington Village or let's talk about Parkdale, let's talk about Westboro, uh, where... You know, you don't even have to zip around anywhere. You can walk to where you're walking to, right? You can, uh, you know, wake up in your, uh, in your, uh, uh, you know, your apartment, your condo, your house, walk to the daycare, walk to the grocer, uh, and walk home. Uh, and certainly that will appeal to some people. And again, I don't think it's going to be the exclusive uh, purview of people, but you know, that will be an important uh, life choice that people get to make. And again, like with office space, the whole idea is to give people a, a choice of how to live in Ottawa. There are always going to be people who want to live in the country. That's the way they're wired. There will be people who will want to live downtown. That's the way they're wired. There will be people who will want to live in 15-minute communities. The funny thing is, it might all be the same person at different life phases in their life as well. But Part of us being a vibrant, dynamic city who can attract people, talent or people being the raw material that business needs, we need to have that choice and 15-minute communities is one of those choices. I think when I referenced Canada, I was just trying to provide a real-time example for our listeners and I was thinking Canada because, I mean, it's kind of like a suburban <laughs> version of a 15-minute community and that everything's there, all the amenities are there, but you're pretty much getting in your car every time to access them. So I understand now more what you mean and makes a lot more sense to me. And I think it's important because if you look at the way that Canada has been developed, it's predominantly been one tenant at a time. If you look at March Road, you've got large office buildings that were by and large purpose built with one tenant in mind. And I think it, it missed the opportunity back when it was originally developed to be a 15 minute community. I think the fundamentals of Canada as a 15 minute community could be there. I just think you're going to have to see some of the surface parking lots converted into residential opportunities where people can live and walk to get their groceries, walk to work, walk to the daycare to pick up their kids. I think fundamentally the official plan and, and references to 15-minute communities is to uh, essentially abolish the car, uh, which I think is a, is a good objective uh, fundamentally. But I also think having a car, uh, having access to a car in Ottawa is also one of the things that makes Ottawa a really attractive community for others to live in. It's not always that practical if you've got kids that are in competitive sports or you like to take advantage of the proximity to uh, cottages and that sort of thing. It's not that uh, um, conducive to, to live car-free always and, and really live the life that you want to live. And I think that's what's really unique about autos. You can have both, I think, if it's done properly. You can have the 15-minute communities. I think right now there's very few that we have in auto. I think Westboro stands up as one where it's, it holistically has some employment. The residential component has been really strong over the past decade. Uh, and then you, you've got retail shops along a, a traditional main street. I think there's lots of improvement that can be made there. Uh, but I think a lot of other communities are missing one of those, one of those three pieces to, to really make it a truly 15 minute community. Mm -hmm. You would say that about the cars, eh, Kevin, given that you 
took a scooter to get here today and you live in Westboro on one of your own development sites and yeah 15 minute communities is what Kevin McMahon's all about <laughs> uh, you know what I'm, I'm living my best hipster life today uh, I scootered in to record a podcast today so uh, and I had a, a, a beyond meat breakfast sandwich so I, I'm pretty excited to be a 15 minute uh, community uh, person I think it's a great objective for the city and I'd like to do whatever we can to to continue to push that agenda. Well I do love your scooter Kevin and I'm pretty jealous of it. Folds up nicely and it looks like it's pretty fun uh, and it could be used on the weekends, could be used to get around town so good for you for adopting the scooter life. Now guys I want to turn our attention to opportunities in the marketplace uh, as a result of COVID. Uh, opportunities, when I say opportunities in the marketplace obviously there's opportunities across all asset classes as we've seen in industrial in Ottawa, land development, but since we're focusing on office, I wanna bring up a reference from the New York Times I read early days in the pandemic. And I think you may have shared it with me, Sean, and the, the article was about big tech in Manhattan taking advantage of office space opportunities that historically had never been available, came available as a result of COVID, and these big tech firms signed leases for 10, 15 years in the middle of a pandemic, whereby they took advantage of others inability to make a decision or maybe they just didn't want to make a decision about their office space given that where we were at 18 months ago but do you think something like that will be seen in ottawa has it already occurred are you seeing it in your own portfolio uh, has canderell experienced that across canada what are your thoughts on that sean yeah it's interesting um so we've been you know not we canderell but the office leasing market has been reasonably quiet uh throughout the pandemic. And a lot of, you know, for obvious reasons, people are hunkering down, figuring out how the chips will fall. And a lot of people are moving uh, the yardsticks forward on short-term leases while they, while they figure things, while they figure things out. In the last month or so, we've seen a real uptick in leasing activity and people being interested and in starting to plan for what I'm going to call a post, uh, a post-pandemic world. So there is a, a real influx of, uh, of uh, leasing activity that we're seeing. And we're the benefactor, I think, of a lot of that because we have a quality product and we also happen to have, happen to have space. You know, as I said earlier on, urban tech, you know, filled a void in downtown Ottawa in the wake of the federal government downsizing, you know, and that was started with Shopify. And, you know, I think all of the fundamentals exist for uh, technology, amongst other users, but certainly technology to come into the core and come into Ottawa on the heels of COVID. I mean, what's driving that? You know, it's not just office space that's driving that, but, you know, you've got to look at Ottawa's quality of life, affordability compared to other you know, major cities in North America. We've got five post-secondary institutions who are churning out talent, access to talent. Um, you know, there, uh, there is a checklist as long, of your, as long as your arm that makes Ottawa attractive for people to come here and businesses go where people go. And so I think those will be the driving forces that will drive growth. Uh, not just in our downtown core, but uh, all throughout uh, Ottawa. And I think the majority of that growth in Ottawa will come from tech and tech that we haven't seen yet. 
Yeah, and I always love your passion for Ottawa, Sean, so thank you for mentioning all the great things and the arm's length worth of reasons why you should move here, work here, and have your business here. If you need office space, please reach out to Brandon Uke at CBRE Ottawa. Uh, that's just a joke. Um, but yeah, it makes a really good point. I think everything that you mentioned coupled with sort of the pent-up demand to get out of isolation, people are getting their vaccines, they want to get back. I'm really noticing in the media now the narrative is more the post-pandemic, the post-COVID economic boom is coming. The roaring 20s are upon us. So that's really exciting for me as a business person, obviously for you as a landlord. And Kevin, obviously it's probably exciting for your business as well. Yeah, I think it's uh, where there's opportunity. I think there's also a, a tremendous amount of risk for some that uh, that don't get it right. I think uh, historically, or uh, historically, millennials have been kind of regarded as needy. And, and does this present another opportunity for uh, for them to really pick and choose who they work for based off of the, the the method in which they work? And I think that's a that's a really big risk to see a lot of people change. Uh, change jobs in in the short term when it's a little easier to go out and and get involved in in new inter- interview processes and that sort of thing. So uh, I think it's really a, an interesting time uh, globally. I think Ottawa is well positioned again. Uh, it seems to be time and time again. There's uh, a level of thankfulness that we do business in Ottawa, and it's grounded by uh, federal government and now tech. And I, I think that's going to continue to be. A positive trend for for Ottawa. Sean, I just wanted to, we're getting near the end of our time here, so I just wanted to, to thank you for your time today and, and sharing all your insight and expertise as it relates to the office market. Certainly we could cover a, a wide range of other topics, but we're running to the end of our time. So I, I just want to finish with asking you a simple question. What advice would you give a local business that's trying to figure out their next steps to deal with uh, all the challenges and opportunities that we've discussed today? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Thanks, Kevin. Um, so my advice, and I, I've given this a lot of thought, uh, is if you don't have to make a decision right now, don't. And by that I mean, if you could afford your office space uh, and you know your cost of running your business and you're able to operate even if it's remotely, you know, you don't have to make a, you don't have to make a decision. We're seeing some people make decisions to try and get rid of their office space because they're viewing that as a, as a huge potential profit point for them. But I would say that the risk of then not having space or having to come get space at a premium in short order, uh, should you have gotten it wrong is a risk. So I would say, uh, the first thing is, you know, don't make any knee-jerk response or reactions, especially if you can afford your office space. Uh, now, there are businesses uh, that might be more pinched and, 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 and might not be able to afford their office space, and that, that's, a different, that's a different kettle of fish. The, the other thing I, uh, you know, I would challenge or invite companies to do is, if you were 10,000 square feet right now and aren't sure what the uh, what the future would hold and you need to make a long-term decision, give thought to maybe taking 8,000, 7,000 feet. And these are arbitrary numbers. I'm saying take less space than you would normally think you would need and work with your landlord to see if they have a flexible, you know, a flexible solution 
to help uh, with overflow space that you might need on a case-by-case -case basis. We're doing that here at Constitution Square uh, with our Pronto Suites in terms of in terms of saying to tenants, look, if you can take less space than you would need otherwise, we've got your back in terms of giving you sort of overflow space so you can breathe on the days that you might have more people in. And that, you know, is giving people confidence that, uh, you know, they can take a bit of a risk in diminishing their footprint without wholesale getting rid of space. But it only works if you've got sort of a safety valve of, uh, of a flexible solution that you can give to a tenant. That's a great segue, Sean. One of the things we want to finish with is just give our listeners an opportunity to find you guys, find out more about Candorel and the great things that you guys are doing in Ottawa. How, how does one find more information on Candorel? Well, I, I'd invite you to go to our website, uh, www.candorel.com. Uh, again, we, uh, we're a fixture in the, in the Canadian commercial real estate scene, and you know our real... Uh, we have several, you know, lines of businesses that will appeal to different levels of, of commercial real estate user from occupier to investor. I think for the scope of this podcast, we'll limit it to the, you know, the occupier of space being, being the tenant. And, you know, our whole goal is how do we run buildings in the most, uh, you know, in, 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 with the highest level of service to the tenant recognizing that we're not just giving space to a tenant, it's a living, breathing uh, complement to their, to their operation. So we pride ourselves on, on wonderful service, uh, you know, white glove service in the industry, but we're also looking to position our buildings and be at the thin edge of the wedge of change. And, you know, I, I throw out, you know, our lobby renovations whereby it's not just changing a lobby from blue to white, it's, it's creating the dynamics and the interaction so that it complements tenants' uh, workplace. You know, I talked briefly about the Pronto Suites, about how we can bring flexibility to a tenant's occupancy model. We're really trying to position ourselves to be a partner and mirror uh, tenants' requirements as, as, much as, as much as we can. So, you know, uh, I invite people to check us out on the website. We're a fixture across Canada. And, you know, our ears are open in terms of we, we want to hear from what tenants want and what they're not getting from their other landlords because you know what? We're likely to try and do it. Thank you, Sean. Great overview on Candorel. And for our listeners, if you want to learn more about ULI, go to uliottawa.ca. You will see what we're all about. Uh, thank you for bearing with us over the last 18 months. We've put together a variety of online events, but we are all geared up and excited about getting out and being together again. So stay tuned for more on that. And we hope you listen to episode two of our podcast, where we will be interviewing James Beach from Broccolini and discussing the industrial market here in Ottawa. Follow ULI Ottawa on LinkedIn and Instagram, or visit us online at www.uliottawa.ca.